And then the other day I drove by and somebody has taken a disc on a tractor and plowed the whole place up. And when I drove by and saw that piece of ground, I said, there used to be a man's house there. If you did not know that, it looks like just an agricultural plot of ground. What used to be a man's residence and his wife is now a plowed piece of ground. That happened in Jerusalem. Have you ever been warned about something and said, well, that happens to other people, that won't happen to me? God doesn't give idle warnings. Now, man might. Man might do all kind of warnings to intimidate, to try to get people to do things according to their own wishes and wants. And God warns it's for a good reason. Some people that won't heed warnings. Matter of fact, probably most of the human family all the way down won't heed warnings. We even have a surgeon general in this country that puts warnings on products. People still don't heed the warnings. We have tornado sirens all over North Alabama. And I'll assure you when they go off in March and April, everybody in my country hunts a hole. You don't cry wolf from North Alabama when the tornado siren goes off. You find out right now where are you going. Where is my family? Once you go down that road, you understand what warnings mean. This, When God says it's not like man. So the warning was given in chapter 2, verse 1, and here's what God was expecting. Verse 12, Therefore also now says the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart. All your heart. Not halfway. And not with your lips and not with your heart. Remember Isaiah said, this people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, on me their lips, heart far from me. Repentance is to be with all the heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Why? For he is just and mighty and holy and a God of fury. No. For he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repents him of it. Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, and uh, I guess you'd say in a few years after Joel does his prophesying here, he walks into Nineveh, and by the way, Jonah don't want Nineveh to repent. Jonah knows if Nineveh repents, God will spare the city. That's why he didn't even want to go to Nineveh, according to chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. Jonah has to spend three days and three nights in the great belly of a fish to get his wake-up call. When he walks into Nineveh, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. By the way, that can get you out of here by 840 cans. He didn't even offer an invitation. He didn't want them to repent. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The text of Scripture says they believed Jonah from the king to the pauper. The whole town repented. Jesus used Nineveh in that day as an example to his own nation, that they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and a greater than Jonah is here. But Joel is not Jonah. 
Joel is a Jew. Joel cares about his nation. When preachers get in pulpits, we care about America. We are Americans. When we go to foreign countries and preach the gospel, we're not trying to Americanize them. We're trying to get them to understand we're all God's people through Adam, and we all want to be God's people through Christ. And it would be dishonest to say that you and I could go to heaven in just any shape, form, or fashion we come up with. You've heard probably the statement, repentance is the toughest commandment in all the world to obey. The evidence is astonishing here. As they say, the, the ponderance of evidence is abounding in that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not difficult to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The evidence is overwhelming. And it's not even difficult to let it come out of your mouth with a confession that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. By the way, baptism is only a one-time thing. Repentance is forever. You repent to become a Christian and you keep on repenting even after you become a Christian. Oh, here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. There's nothing else required of me. Wrong. You are to keep on believing. You are to keep on repenting. You are to keep on confessing. The only thing you do one time is be baptized. The poor and the contrite spirit and he that trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 too. That's the man I look at. Rend your heart, not your garment. So what I want to do right now is three things. Let's get down to the mechanics. Of how do you get me and you to rend If I were to take a survey in this room and say, what happens in the human experience or what has ever happened to you in your life that has absolutely ripped your heart out of your chest, as it were? Name me an experience you've run into that has really stretched you to the limit. What would that be? Whatever that is, that's your illustration of what that verse is talking about. I've seen girls be rejected by their so-called boyfriends. Just say, I'm heart sick. I said, sister, there's more out there than him. Ain't nothing wrong with you. That's his loss, not yours. She wants to believe that. But at the time, she can't think anything about but where she is. I've seen guys at Freed Hardeman when I was in the dorm there. Here's a guy call a girl up, and next thing she says, I wouldn't date you if you was the last man on this campus. It's Friday night. Everybody else is going out. They've got somebody to go with. What are you doing here? I'll be here to play cards when y'all get back. I'm stuck here. By the way, girls, guys know rejection too. It's no fun either. Joel 1.8 says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth. 
for the husband of her youth. On November the 1st of this past year, my wife and I, only daughter, our last child, got married. I didn't think there's ever going to be a boy out here fitting to be able to be worthy to marry to my daughter. But she thinks so, so I think so. I talked to my daughter long and hard about this boy she's going to marry. I didn't ask her if you love him. I said, do you even like him? They've been dating five years. Do you reckon they've figured anything out in five years? By the way, he was terrified of me. I liked that. <laughs> to a large degree, he still is. I like that too. But I said, can you imagine any part of your life without him? I said, and he's the one. What would be your biggest nightmare? What if your fiancé, before you got married, he got killed in a car wreck? How would you feel? Then you understand, Joel 1.8. I'm engaged to be married to this man, and he dies before we're wed. How does that girl feel? You're now getting down into the mechanics of godly sorrow. Sorrow like that. Point number one, real genuine repentance is to see sin like God sees sin. Understand that? I'm not talking about the way the world mocks at it and laughs at it like Proverbs 14, 9. Fools make a mock of sin. God don't mock sin. God says of sin, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short, heavy that cannot hear, ear heavy that cannot hear, and his hand short that cannot say. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sin has hid his faith from you. He will not hear, not cannot. Will not hear. That's what God thinks about sin. The very first time in the Bible, in the book of Genesis chapter 2, you find out what God thinks about sin is the consequence he put on it. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, Genesis 2.16. For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day there you eat thereof, you will surely die. Hebrew says, dying, you will die. A lot of times Christians are not afraid of death. What we're afraid of is the dying process up to death. Death is just transition one second then into that greater realm. It's having to suffer in death, isn't it, that we get more concerned with. I saw that in my daddy. I saw that in my mother. I saw that in my brother-in-law living next door dying with Alzheimer's. Christians don't fret the point of death. Christians fret the process of dying to the point. Death. Why in the world would God Almighty put death as the consequence of sin? Because that's how God sees it. 
That's how you see it. You walk out of this church building and go right up here on this other side of this parking lot where I'm pointing. And as you go to your car, if you're parked on that side, go out there and look at that plot of ground with those stones in it. Sin produced that right there. You drive home, you may go by a lot of what's called the dead center of town. By the way, the dead center of town is a cemetery. Sin produced that. That's why that's there. God didn't put a cemetery in the Garden of Eden. No cemeteries in the Garden of Eden. God drove man out of the garden. The cemeteries is outside the garden. Paradise is in heaven now. And there's no cemeteries in heaven. God didn't make cemeteries. Sin made cemeteries. It's no wonder in Ecclesiastes 7 when Solomon says about the house of mourning versus the house of mirth that the living will lay it to heart. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of mirth or pleasure or party. The living will lay it to heart. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Lust, when it's conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. James 1, 13, 15. At the end of the book of James, it says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he that converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Had a multitude of sin. James 5, 19, 20. God says, you see sin like I see it? Sin is death. Sin is a cemetery. We don't laugh and cut up at funerals, do we? Unless, as we say, we're celebrating somebody's home going. But even then, we still sorrow. We just don't sorrow as others that have no hope. So how am I to see sin, Lord? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have a humble heart. Right on the heels of that. Blessed are they that mourn. They shall be comforted. What do you mean, mourn? The Greek word there for mourn literally means to mourn as for the dead. Some of you young people may not have experienced like some of us old folks have. Lord, let you live long enough and time goes on, you'll be where we are. I have never, ever had the rug pulled out from under me any stronger than the day I was informed by my parents that my daddy was terminal. That shocked me. He hid that from me and my sister for a long, long time. And mother would too. But he got to where he couldn't cover it up anymore. He can't hide it anymore. Everybody's going to know it now. Might as well let my family know it first. When a doctor walks into that hospital room and looks at you in the eye and says, we've done all we can do. We'll just keep your daddy comfortable. Folks, that don't sit well, does it? And you watch the process. 
You go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You eat thinking about it. You take a shower thinking about it. Day after day after day, your life is put on hold. And finally, you see him take his last breath like I did. Finally, you see her take her last breath like I did. And all I could think was, I ought to hate sin more now than I ever have. You young folks get this? Because that's how God sees sin. Now the good news is, joy comes in the morning. Exceeding joy. Unspeakable joy. There is no pain, no sorrow, no death, no crying. The former things have passed away. That's good news. That's great news. Right now I live in a world of sin and suffering. And the world that I'm living in ought to make me hate sin. Abhor it. It's done nothing but hurt my family. It's done nothing but destroy relationships that I've tried to salvage. It's done nothing but create bitterness and anger in the hearts of people that don't even realize what they're doing to their self. God says, rend your heart, not your garment. I took the time this week. I've got it here on these little slips of paper. If you want them, you can have them. I took my concordance down and I looked up every word and synonym to the word rend or rent or tear that had to do with garments in this illustration. And if my concordance is accurate, Unabridged, may not be. And my counting is accurate. There are at least 33 times in the Bible outside of Joel 2.13 where rending the garment is recorded. Amazing to me, there were only three times in the entire New Testament that's even referenced. Three times. The rest of them are in the Old Testament. The majority of what I've got here on these pages is the reason people did that was because of a death or such bad news that was about to lead to somebody's death. You remember Job in Job chapter 1? Loses all his belongings and he loses all ten kids. He ran his garment. Job chapter 2 Job's three friends sees Job afar off they don't even recognize him he's a picture of living death out there on that ash heap it says they rent their garments when they saw his grief the three accounts in the New Testament are the high priest when Jesus finally answered the question are you the Christ the son of God and when Jesus admitted he rent his garments he considered that to be absolutely an atrocity against God, as though he had lost a loved one. 
Second occurrence is in Acts 14, 14, when Paul and Barnabas rend their garments when the city of Lystra is about to offer sacrifice to them, thinking that they are gods. The third one is in Acts 16 at Philippi, where the magistrates of the city say these men that are Jews have come into our city and also try to get us to follow decrees that are contrary to Caesar. And the magistrates rend their garments when they hear that. That's treason to Caesar. Athaliah in the Old Testament. You remember old wicked Athaliah? When Joash, Jehoash, the young eight-year-old boy that was the only one spared in the entire family, when she annihilated everybody else, there wasn't any rending any garments when she's killing off her grandkids. What she didn't know is somebody saved one. When that boy was eight years old, he stood up before the pillar at the temple and crowned as king. And Athaliah rends her garments, treason, treason. She wasn't sorry over sin. She's sorry she's going to lose her position. That's what she's sorry about. By the way, they took care of that. She didn't have to worry about it. She died that day. There's all kind of rending of garments in the Bible. God says that can be hypocritical. You can do that out of show. And I take this lesson to mean, Jimmy Clark, you can repent out of show too. You can get up here and preach a good sermon. What are you going to do when you're by yourself? What are you going to do when you need to repent? Because let me tell you something. You're not looking at a perfect man in this pulpit. I've made heaps of mistakes. I reckon I'll make heaps more. I have got to see sin like God sees it. It isn't pretty. It isn't something to laugh about. It isn't something to put off dealing with. It's something to deal with and get it behind you. Point number two. Not only must I see sin as God sees it, I must sorrow over sin like God sorrows over it. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, For godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. There's two sorrows in that verse. And that runs all the way through the Bible. There's two sorrows in that verse. I'm not going to preach Psalm 51 nor Luke 15. I know that's tomorrow. But let me tell you something. You could go right there and find real sorrow. Particularly Psalm 51. There's a man that suffered. When you look at sorrow, godly sorrow. Yesterday I was listening to a video clip. Actually, it wasn't a clip. It was on television, but it was a clip of a past week's interview with a man named Lance Armstrong. You ever heard of Lance Armstrong? Toured to France, winner for multiple. By the way, he had to forfeit all that because he cheated. Doped his blood and took other things. 1995, he won the Tour de France. Actually, he won it several times. Finally, they interviewed him recently and asked him, in view of the fact now that the findings have come out and you've been barred from ever doing that and all of, all of your uh, championships have been taken away from you, stripped from you, whatever you got's an asterisk by your record. Knowing what you know now, if you were back in 1995, what would you do? Here's what he said. I don't know if you saw the interview. Here's what he said. Knowing what was going on around me at the time by everybody, 
I probably would still do it. What's he ashamed of? He's ashamed he got caught. That's all he's ashamed of. And he's a hero. Lance Armstrong's not my hero. Even though I got a bike helmet, it's got live strong on the side of it. Probably going to scratch that off of it. Just scratch it off, just put it on the road, just to get it off. After the clip was over, this talk show panel basically said, well, at least he was honest. Yeah, what does that get you? He has no remorse, no remorse whatsoever for knowing he cheated the system. And if he had the chance, he'd do it again. We have a group of guys in North Alabama. We got one of our members that's in the prison ministry. Limestone County Correctional Facility is within two, three miles of our church building. One of our members teaches there, like on Tuesday nights. I was talking to him and says, what kind of response are you getting from these guys in there? He said, I got a captive audience for one. They're not going anywhere. And by the way, it's only on good behavior they're in my class. I says, did I ever tell you about what put them in there? He says, oh, all the time, talking about, you know, you know, this happened and it wasn't my fault. Y'all ever heard? It was never my fault. Well, isn't that what Adam said to God in the Garden of Eden? Isn't that what Eve said to God in the Garden of Eden too? Not my fault. Isn't that what Saul said to Samuel? The people. Isn't that what Aaron said to Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai? The people. And not my fault. I'm not responsible for that. Where's any sorrow in that? Godly sorrow works repentance. Folks, godly sorrow is not repentance. I need to establish that right now. Oh, well, I'm just so sorry for what I've done, Lord. Well, that's good. Now you need to repent. Well, I thought I just did. Oh, you had not repented yet at all. You just see sin like God sees it, and you just sorrow now, like God asked you to sorrow. Now you got to work repentance. As I would say at my house, you got some work to do. Still, you're making some progress. You ain't got there yet. You see sin like God sees it. It brings death. If you don't see it that way, it will ultimately bring your death. That ought to shake you. That ought to disturb you. You ought not lay your head down on your pillow at night and go to sleep thinking, if I died, I would be eternally lost. If I don't do something. We got a young man right now dating a girl. She's a member of the church, but he isn't. He came to my office a couple of Sundays ago for two hours and 15 minutes. I went through the history of religion with him. At the beginning of that study, he sat down there and he looked me right in the eye. He says, I will have to admit to you that if I died right now, I know I would be in hell. I was like, you're kidding me. Most people think they're all right. You are telling me point blank. You believe deep down that you would be lost. Absolutely. I don't really know what it is I'm supposed to know. I got in hyperdrive mode to teach him in two hours and a half from Acts 2 as much as I could get in that kid's head. 
He didn't do anything about it, but he listened. And repentance was a part of it, guys. And he didn't run him off. He'd come back the next Sunday. He's, hopefully he'll be there tomorrow. I don't know. He's the only religious person basically in his whole family. The rest of his mom and dad and the rest of them, they don't give hardly a flip about religion. He just has some inkling he needs to be doing something religiously. I don't know what I'd do with myself tonight if I actually thought I was lost. I know one thing, I'd be asking this question, can anybody in here tell me what must I do to be saved? I don't mean what your opinion is. I want you to show me in here what must I do to be saved. Because I'm going to tell you something. You show me what must I do to be saved, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that tonight. Tonight before I leave anywhere. Folks, I've driven many a mile up Mud Street. I know East Aboga and Southside and Gadsden and Atala and Sneed and Bluntsville and Priceville. I know all those roads. Like a Bob said, Delighter, I can shut my eyes and lean with the curves in these roads. Let me tell you something. As late as I drive on the road, most out there are police officers and drunks. You can be hurled into eternity tonight. I can't. And by the way, that's not even to say what are we really carrying around in our bodies we may not even know. Good preacher friend of mine, Jamie Long, just had surgery in Birmingham recently. Didn't have a clue what was going on. And when next thing you know, they suspected him of colon cancer. He's got a part of his colon now. I've had members say, Brother Clark, I'm going in for some tests. Next thing, the doctor says, I got 18 months of chemo. By the way, that'll put your vacation plans on hold, won't it? Summer and next summer too. Who knows what we're walking around with? I, I said, well, you're, we're on repentance and now you're just getting deeper off on the bad subject. What's the point? God is sorry. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. God says, if you turn from sin, I will forgive you out of my goodness. And your sins and your iniquities, I'll remember no more. All those that walk by faith in Hebrews 11 knew two things about God. That he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's a lot about God outside of those two. Justice of God is there, the wrath of God is there, the holiness of God, the righteousness, the truth of God, it's all there. But those that walk by faith believe that he is. There's a side of God that keeps him going. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, 6. Now you focus on that. You go back and read Joel 2, 13. Rend your heart and not your garment, for the Lord is gracious. The Lord will take you in. You need to be 
discarded. So your sins and your iniquities are remembered no more. Now we come to point number three. See sin like God sees sin. Sorrow over sin like God would sorrow over sin. And submit the will to God like God wants you to do. For those of you that are preachers and even those that may not preach but you teach Bible classes, there's an old pioneer preacher of the restoration movement. His name is Benjamin Franklin. By the way, not the one with the kite and electricity, not the statesman. Remember the Lord's Church. He has a series of books. I think they're in three volumes called Gospel Preacher. I don't know what volume it's in, but he had a sermon on repentance. He preached that sermon. I don't know where also. That sermon was put in print. And I read that sermon years ago, and it impressed me. Franklin made the point, and accurately so, that you can change in your mind as far as the information is concerned and still not repent. You can even be stirred emotionally to do something and still not repent. So his point was, then how is repentance achieved? You remember old Felix in Acts 24, 24, when he wanted to hear the faith in Christ? Verse 25 says, He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, judgment to come, and he trembled and repented. No. He trembled. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. See, I could say something tonight to really stir you emotionally and you still won't repent. Because it won't be the stirring of the motions that's really going to get the job done. There's something deep down in the core of you that has to be moved. The willpower. The intellect, the emotions, that can all change. And you still sit there. You change the willpower. You change the willpower. You got repentance. You got the real deal. And Saul of Tarsus learned who the Lord was in Acts 9. Saul of Tarsus kicked against the pricks and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and there it will be told thee what thou must do. For three days and three nights, blind, nobody got there yet. He's praying. He's still in his sins, Acts 9 11 says, though he's praying. He hasn't been told yet what to do to call on the name of the Lord. And Ananias finally shows up three days later and walks into Saul of Tarsus. He didn't tell Saul of Tarsus, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You know why? He didn't have to tell Saul to repent. Saul knew who the Lord was. He knew what he'd done to the Lord. And the Lord is going to save him. The Lord's going to save me anyway. All I need to know is what to do. And Ananias came in there and says, And now why tarest thou? Arise, be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The man had already repented. He just needed the last piece of the puzzle. Acts 9, 18 says, and immediately 
he arose and was baptized. And he never looked backwards. Never looked back. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry who is before him a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is exceeding abundant. Faith and love which is in Christ Jesus it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy. In me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should have to believe on him a life everlasting. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. That's First Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. And Paul tells Timothy, I charge thee, charge thee, Give you responsibility now. You understand the attitude of what a converted heart is? Now, Timothy, I charge you. Don't be like Hymenaeus and Philetus who made shipwreck of the faith. I charge you. Careful of your sins. You're here tonight. Songs that want to be selected has already been selected. Five minutes past, I know. But the nature of repentance has to do with the fact that I have hurt God. Every good, every perfect gift has come down from the Father of lights. And what have I done to God? What have I done to my Father? That's the worst thing in the world. He's always done good to me. And what did I do? That crushed me. And because of that, I don't ever want to feel that way. And I don't ever want to do that again. You won't have to worry about whether anybody knew that I did wrong or not, if I got caught in what I did or didn't do, it doesn't matter whether you know or don't know. I know who does know. Because God Almighty knows I'm eat up. Eat up with sorrow. The Lord says, I will forgive you. I'll take you back. Though your sins be as scarlet, they be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, it'll be a, I'll take you back. I'll treat you as though you've never seen. Justified. Made right. In the blood of Christ. Won't that make you want to repent? Folks scaring you to obey the gospel or scaring you to repent, that ain't going to last. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Romans 2, verse 4. Uncle Franklin taught that verse over and over and over toward the end of his years. He says, if I had it to do over in preaching, the way I would approach reaching the hearts of men is to press the goodness of God and the love of God to draw the heartstrings that turn from sin and lead to repentance. That's my message tonight. Joel offered them hope. The last days, I'm going to pour out that spirit. All the blessings are going to come to me. 
They saw that in Acts 2. Acts 2 is history to you and me. Rise. Be baptized. Confessing the faith you have, repenting of your sins, walking out of here with your head held up, knowing regardless of what happens, I'm a child of God, I'm an heir of the kingdom. You need to repent of your wickedness and pray God. That's what we're here for. We're here to encourage you. While together we stand and sing, if you're saved, won't you come?